0: The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Ryan Rippey in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. This is about 700 years before the coming of Christ. And the book of Micah contains several contrasting emphases. Uh, Just like we've seen in all of the minor prophets, we have this same theme that's going on, is God's glory is displayed in bringing salvation through judgment. This is this theme we've seen over and over again. And we see here in Micah that Yahweh is the God of Israel, but He's also at the same time the God of all the nations. Yahweh is judge, but He's also Savior. He's majestic in wrath but he's also astonishing in his compassion. He demands and executes justice, and yet he also promises forgiveness. Yahweh scatters, but he also gathers his flock. He destroys Zion, but he'll also resurrect Zion. And the God of Micah threatens the nations with humiliation and shame, but he also offers these same nations peace. So there's all of these contrasting things, and that makes sense to us. Those of us who know the gospel, those of us who've heard the word of God and we've believed the good news about Jesus, we realize that this contrast between God's holiness and God's love, this isn't at odds. This is who God is. He's perfectly holy and righteous, and he's also perfectly loving and compassionate. In fact, the cross is his solution for who he is. At the cross, both his holiness and his righteous hatred of sin is on display because he crucified his son and made him to be a sin offering. But also his love and mercy and compassion is on display because it's through the death of Jesus that we can draw near to God and be forgiven of our sins. Now, in the book of Micah, it breaks up really into three sections, and each section begins with the word hear or listen. Micah chapter 1 verse 2, hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention. O earth and all that's in it, he says. Micah 3, 1, hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Micah 6, 1, hear what the Lord says, arise and plead your case before the mountains. And so three parts to this book of Micah, chapters 1 and 2, chapters 3 through 5, and then chapters 6 and 7. And what I noticed as I was preparing this week and looking at Micah is that there is a theme running through the book of Micah that not every commentator pulls out, but but some of them speak to this, that Micah is, he comes from a little village 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem, and he's really prophesying against this great city of Jerusalem, the capital city of Judah, the southern kingdom. By this time, the kingdoms are divided. There's the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. Samaria is the capital in the north. Jerusalem is the capital in the south. And and we see this prophecy in chapter 1, verse 5. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria, the capital? What is the transgression of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem, the capital? And so right at the beginning... He's speaking of the capital cities of the northern and southern kingdom, and he's going to prophesy against them, and he's going to basically say, I'm going to destroy your capital city. I'm going to destroy Jerusalem, but I'm going to remake it. And in doing so, he then goes on to say in his second prophecy, chapters 3 to 5, I'm going to destroy your leaders and your kings and your princes and your rulers, but I'm going to replace them with the Messiah. And then in chapters six and seven, he says, I'm going to destroy your people, but I'm going to replace them with a remnant who love me, who chase after me, who walk in the name of the Lord, our God, people who are forgiven, people whose transgressions are cast into the depths of the sea. And so he speaks, I think, in the first prophecy about the city itself that he's going to destroy and remake. In the second prophecy, chapters 3 uh, three through 5, he speaks of destroying the leaders and remaking a leader in the Messiah who's going to be the perfect leader. And then chapters 6 and 7, destroying the people, but saving a remnant and delivering them. And also, I think, including all of the nations in this deliverance. So let's read chapters 1 and 2 together. Actually, I'm just going to start by reading chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold... The Lord is coming out of his place and he will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth and the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will be split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore I will make Samaria a heap... In the open country, a place for planting vineyards. And I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. And all her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them. And to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. For this I will lament and wail, I will go stripped and naked, I will make lamentation like the jackals, and mourning like the ostriches, for her wound is incurable, and it's come to Judah, it is reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem, tell it not in Gath, weep not at all, in Bethlephrah, roll yourselves in the dust." "'Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir. "'In nakedness and shame, the inhabitants of Za'anan do not come out. "'The lamentation of Beth-Azael shall take away from you its standing place. "'For the inhabitants of Maroth wait anxiously for good "'because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. "'Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. "'It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion.' For in you were found the transgressions of Israel, therefore you shall give parting gifts to Morasheth Gath. The houses of Akzib shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Marsha. The glory of Israel shall come to Adalam. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair, for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. Wow. That is some harsh words. This is God promising to destroy Jerusalem. And you see the progress. He actually speaks prophecy of the northern kingdom going to be destroyed. And all these names of these cities are the path the Assyrian army took when it destroyed the northern kingdom. These names don't mean really much to us today. And if, if, we, if we looked at the Hebrew and understand the Hebrew, there's a word play on every single name. For example, he basically says, the city of dust, you're going to be made dust. These types of things throughout chapter one. But what ends up happening is this path of sin has come from the northern kingdom all the way down into Jerusalem to the very gates. And as a result, the path of judgment is going to come through the northern kingdom down to Jerusalem. God says he's going to do it. He calls in verse 2 of chapter 1 the nations of the earth to witness this. He says, you watch and pay attention. And then he rises up. What a picture. Picture of his patience. He's waiting for his people to obey his command. And he's waiting and he's waiting. And finally he's done. And he rises up. Man, I remember being a kid. Seeing my dad sit in his chair. My brother and I, we'd fight. Then we'd break something. And then he'd rise up out of that chair, and we knew it's over. We're dead. Then you'd hear the the loops on that belt, right? To that day. Ooh, just cringes. Because we knew we were dead meat. This is the picture here is that God is rising up. Obviously, God is everywhere, God is omnipresent. This is a picture. That would have been very vivid to the people of Israel that their God was going to rise up. Now, when had they seen him rise up before? When he destroyed Egypt and delivered them through the Red Sea. When he destroyed the nations that were in Palestine, in Canaan, and gave them the promised land. And now he says he's going to rise up in judgment against them. They knew what was coming verses 3 and 5, the Lord said he's going to tread down the high places of the earth. And here in this context, sometimes the high places were the places of idolatrous worship, where these pillars to other gods were set up. But here in the context, you can see in verse 5, the high place is Jerusalem itself, the highest mountain, Mount Zion, where the city of God was established This city that was supposed to be the place where God's glory dwelled among his people in the temple and God's kings were supposed to represent him on the earth and instead they're full of sin and so he says, I'm going to rise up and I'm going to destroy the high place. Verse 9, the sins of Samaria reach all the way to the gates of Jerusalem. So in verse 12, disaster is going to come all the way to the gates of Jerusalem. Now this must have been a hard message to preach You can see in verses 9 and 10 that Micah is in tears. You kind of read between the lines and see this. He says in verse 8, I'm going to lament and wail. I'm going to go stripped and naked. A sign of mourning, a sign of weeping. I'm going to make lamentations like the jackals. What a picture. They had jackals out in the desert and you could hear them howling at night. And he's going to howl like the jackals. I've never heard an ostrich mourn. I don't know what that sounds like. I should have looked it up on YouTube. But then he says, the reason I'm doing this, the reason I'm weeping in verses 9 and 10 is because the wound is incurable. The sin is incurable. And it's come to Judah. And it's infected Judah. And it's reached the gate of my people, Jerusalem. And I'm weeping because God is going to destroy it. He pled with tears. He preached through tears. He didn't preach this message in delight. He didn't want to see them destroyed. These were his people. He loved this city. This is the place where he would go and worship God in the temple. God says in chapter 2, here's the reason why. He gives four sins. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, they oppress the poor and defenseless. Listen to this, verse 1 of chapter 2, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds, and when the morning dawns, they perform it. Because it's in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks. You shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. And in that day they'll take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people. How he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Therefore you have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. The wealthy, the powerful in Israel were taking the land of their neighbors, taking their inheritance away from them, what they would hand down to their kids. And So God says, I'm going to give over your land to a wicked kingdom. It's going to be Babylon that comes in. And you're not going to have anybody to measure out, cast a line, measure out your land by lot because it's going to be given over to Verse 4 says, apostates, those who don't worship the true and living God. The second sin, verse 6, he says, you oppose God's messengers and his word. Do not preach, they thus preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. They didn't want to hear this message from Micah. Don't preach at us. Don't tell us God's going to judge us. We don't want to hear that. That's not good news. Tell us what we want to hear. Tell us God's going to make us rich and healthy and happy. That's what we want to hear. Third sin, they practice evil. Verses 7 to 10. Should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses, from their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest because of the uncleanness that destroys with the grievous destruction. There were robbers and thieves who were who were robbing rich men on the road who thought they were safe, taking women out of their homes, away from their children, stealing them into captivity to be their prostitutes and their concubines. He says, you practiced evil. And then the fourth sin in verse 11, you delighted in false prophets. You not only didn't want to hear the true prophets, verse 11, if a man should go about and utter wind and lies saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. They had prosperity preachers then too. I'll preach to you wine and strong drink. You're going to enjoy the best wine, the best beer, the best strong drink there is. You're going to have parties and luxury and you're going to enjoy yourself. And this was a time of prosperity in Judah. Judah at the time of Isaiah and the time of Micah. This is why when Babylon came in and they saw all the wealth of Israel, they decided, hey, let's invade it. And so the Lord is going to judge them. But in the midst of all of this, this is so like our Father in heaven. In the midst of all of this, look at verses 12 and 13 of chapter 2. "'I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. "'I will gather the remnant of Israel. "'I will set them together like sheep in a fold.'" Like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them, they break through and pass the gate, going out by it. The king passes on before them, the Lord is at their head. So, this picture he gives in verses 12 and 13. Verses 12 and 13, he basically says, the Lord is going to restore Jerusalem. Though they're going to be destroyed, he's going to gather a remnant of people. He's going to go before them at their head, verse 13. He's going to pass through the breach in the gate of Jerusalem that Babylon had gone through, as it were. And he's going to break through and pass by at their head with the implication that he's going to restore everything that was lost in Jerusalem. He's going to restore it. Just as He went before His people and was their head as they journeyed from Egypt to the Promised Land, even so He's going to go before His remnant into the new Jerusalem. What a picture. Turn over to Revelation chapter 21 because we haven't seen this happen yet. But Scripture does speak of a new Jerusalem. Of course, this is after the return of Christ in His thousand-year reign the judgment of chapter 20. But he speaks of the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem that's going to be in it. I just want to read some of this to you because I think the prophecy in Micah, though it is going to be fulfilled when Christ returns, and I think the Lord Jesus is going to lead his Jewish brothers, the remnant, into Jerusalem, the old Jerusalem, the Jerusalem we know, there's going to be a new Jerusalem eventually in the new heavens and the new earth that is the ultimate fulfillment of this. He says in Revelation 21, verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Wow. God says he's going to be in their midst. He's going to dwell in our midst. He's going to make his home on the new earth, in the new Jerusalem, with us. He's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. This, This is hope. And I love, I love this when he, he says, it's almost like John knows, that John who's having the, the vision here, the Apostle John, it's almost like he, he's thinking, this is too good to be true. And so the, he responds, the one on the throne says, write this down. This is trustworthy and true. You can bank on this. This is going to happen. This brings great hope spring's great hope many of you know my brother-in-law's dying he's on hospice he's got i don't know how long left not long 39 years old four kids but he's loved the lord jesus for 16 years and he said to me i was with him tuesday spending time with him and i said to him what do you want me to say at your service what what would you like me to say and he had been reading don't waste your life by john piper and um he said, you know, what sticks out to me is that story at the beginning of it when um, there, that 85-year-old man came to Jesus and he, he, he was converted and he came to Christ. He believed the gospel. And his thought after coming to Christ at 85 years old was, I wasted my life. And he said, would you just plead with them not to waste their life, to come to Christ at a young age? He sat down all his nephews and nieces, my kids, my, my other nephews and nieces, and with each one of them pled for them to follow Jesus shared with them how the lord's been good to him how the lord has led him and delivered him and protected him and is bringing him even through this and he just he said to me i just want to end well i want to be faithful to the lord to the end i think this this is what brings hope because we know this world isn't our home there's tears and mourning and crying, but there's coming a day when that's going to be gone. The former things are going to pass away. I was reading to him in 2 Corinthians 5, this light momentary affliction. This, his, can, his dying of cancer, his body shutting down. It's just a light momentary affliction in comparison to the glory that's yet to be revealed to him. What a thought. What a thought. And Micah, in the midst of this judgment upon the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Judah and the nation of Israel, as he sees this picture of his people being conquered, there's this hope, though, that God says, no, there's going to be a remnant, and I'm going to lead them back through the breach in the wall, and I'm going to restore Jerusalem, and I'm going to lead them at their head and be in their midst. And we know ultimately the final fulfillment of this is when he makes all things new right here. In fact, he says in verse 22 of Revelation 21, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and the gates will never be shut by day, nor there will be no night there. What does that mean? Perfect safety. They don't got to shut the gates at night because there's robbers coming. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. We could go on and this chapter. The end of the story is so wonderful, but let's go back to Micah. He's going to destroy and remake Jerusalem. Secondly, chapters 3 to 5, he's going to replace Jerusalem's leaders with his Messiah. Now, I'm not going to read through every verse in chapters 3 through 5 of Micah, but I want you to see, in chapter 3, what's going on is there is failed leadership in Jerusalem. Chapter 3, verse 1, I said, Hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice, you who hate the good and love the evil? You were raised up as a leader to know justice and to love it, but instead you hate good and love evil. So he condemns the rulers. In verse 5, he condemns their prophets. The Lord's concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against them who puts nothing in their mouths. Imagine that, the prophets who were supposed to be the mouthpiece of God. Instead, what they do is if someone gives them food, They say, oh, peace be upon you. God's going to bless you. But if someone refuses to give them anything, oh, God's going to curse you. Sounds like those guys on TV. Send me money and God will bless you. But if you don't send me money, you don't have enough faith, God's going to punish you and curse you. God says these are false prophets who are condemned. Then he condemns the priests in verse 11. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. He condemns all of their leaders. And so in, in, in verse 10 of chapter 3, he says, what you guys are doing as leaders is you're building Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. My great city, you are building it on a foundation of blood and sin. And so the Lord is going to destroy these Leaders, Verse 12, because of you, Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Because of the leaders, I'm going to wipe you out. And what a contrast then, because in chapter 4, he says, you know what I'm going to replace you with? I'm going to replace you with my Messiah, with my ruler, my leader, my king that I'm going to bring. Verse 1 of chapter 4, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths This Messiah is going to be exalted up along with Jerusalem to the highest place above all other rulers. And in verse 2, His law is going to reign supreme. He says, let us learn His ways, His paths, His law, His word. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Verses 3 and 4, His reign is going to be characterized by peace. He shall judge between many peoples. And they shall decide for strong nations far away. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. What a picture. I'm going to take my implements, my weapons of war, and I'm going to turn them into weapons of farming. Implements of farming. Then he says in verse 5 to 7, his people will walk in his name. For all the peoples walk, verse 5, each in the name of its God, but we, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I'll assemble the lame and gather those who've been driven away and those whom I've afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant. And those who were cast off, a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. Isn't that what Jesus said when he came? I didn't come to call the righteous but the sick to repentance. It's not the healthy who need a physician. It's the sick. He said, I'm going out to the highways and byways, to the lonely and least and the lost, and I'm compelling them to come in. This is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. There weren't many of you chosen who were wise. There weren't many of you strong. There weren't many mighty. God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. What a plan of salvation it is. But he says this is what he's going to do. It's going to be characterized by peace. And then he says in verse 8, Jerusalem is going, Jerusalem's going to have dominion over God's kingdom. You, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, that's Jerusalem, to you shall it come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. This is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. When he came, when he came, he came to bring in the kingdom of God. Isn't that what he said? The kingdom of God is at hand. And he said unless you're born again you can't even see the kingdom of God he tells Nicodemus. But if you are born again you can be a part of this kingdom God's kingdom that's ruled by his messiah and so over in acts chapter 2 in fact turn over there real quick acts 2:32 Peter as he's preaching Acts 2:32 this Jesus God raised up and of that we're all witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and receiving from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing, for David did not ascend into the heavens. But he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Lord. And Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. See what he says? He exalted Jesus to his right hand. He seated him at his right hand, and then what did he do? He didn't do this with David. He gave Jesus, made him to be both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. And he's ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father until all his enemies are put under his feet. And he's coming back, and he's going to establish his kingdom on this earth. And then this millennial kingdom is going to go right into eternity. And the kingdom of this world, Revelation 11 says, will become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. Revelation eleven fifteen. 15. What a picture. Hebrews 12, 22 says, Now on this side of the cross, we don't come to a mountain that can be shaken by an earth." quake we don't come to um a mountain that was terrifying to a tempest and gloom and blazing fire and darkness but instead hebrews twelve twenty two, we come to mount zion that's jerusalem to the city of the living god the heavenly jerusalem and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering to the assembly of the firstborn who were enrolled in heaven and to god the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, that's Jesus' blood, that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, he says. This is where we come now. By faith, we come to the heavenly Jerusalem, to God the Father and to Jesus, surrounded by these firstborns who are enrolled in heaven, this remnant that God has taken. And in Revelation 21 and 22, we see this heavenly Jerusalem coming down to earth, In the new heavens, and the new earth, this is what God is planning. This is the hope we have. This is the hope Israel had as Micah was preaching to them, is that there was going to be a remnant who came out of the people who were going to be delivered, and Messiah was going to rule and reign in their midst. And we know now, on this side of the cross, that that promised Messiah was Jesus. And that's our hope. That's the good news of the gospel. The Messiah has come, and his name is Jesus, and he is King and Lord. And we bow our knee to him as such. And when we do, when we bow our knee to Jesus by faith, and we believe that he died for our sins, we're brought into his kingdom, and we're saved and delivered and forgiven. And we have this hope that is trustworthy and true, and will never be put to shame. This is good news. Back to Micah chapter 4 after he promises this Messiah to come, who's going to reign in their midst, he says in verses 9 to 14 of chapter 4, Judah's leaders, they can't save you. They can't deliver you from the invasion and exile that's to come. But in chapter 5, he says, there's one who will come who will save you, the Messiah again. Chapter 5, verse 2, You, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. What a promise. 700 and something years before Jesus came. Now Jesus might have been able to, if he was just a man who was very shrewd, he might have been able to figure out how to fulfill other prophecies, but he didn't control where he was born. That's for sure. And he was born in What in the providence of God is so amazing is that Mary and Joseph, these descendants of David who were outcast and no longer ruling and reigning, that they would be from Bethlehem, that Jesus would be born to Mary, and so he would be from Bethlehem, this little town outside of Jerusalem. And isn't this the way God does it? Even his Messiah doesn't come from the big city. Even his Messiah has no reputation and no great name. He was born in an animal trough. He was born among animals because they were poor. And because of this census, there was no room in any inn, any place to stay. And yet he is the king of glory. He's the Messiah, the Lord who comes to rule and reign. And in verse 4 of chapter 5, he's going to be a shepherd. Look at this, verse 4. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Amen. As David was a shepherd, so Jesus... The fulfillment, the great Messiah is the good shepherd. Remember what he said? I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. And what's so wonderful about this picture of shepherd is that for all of us, any of us who are not Jewish in this room, we got to be part of this wonderful plan, even though we were without hope and without God, Paul says, We were brought near by the blood of Christ. And Jesus himself, when he said he was the good shepherd, he says, I have other sheep who are not of this fold, Jerusalem, Judaism, the Jewish people, and I must go get them also so that we may be one flock with one shepherd, Jesus. And that he did. 2,000 years later, we're on the other side of the planet. And he's been making disciples and calling out his sheep from all the nations of the earth. And we can sit here this morning in Brentwood and say, we are a sheep of the great shepherd. And he did this glorious work on our behalf. So he comes, and he's the shepherd who's going to be endued with the power, the strength of Yahweh in order to protect the flock, to feed the flock, to shepherd the flock. What a picture. And he's coming back, and he's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Wow. Wow. Well, the third prophecy, Yahweh will fulfill His promises by filling Jerusalem with His faithful remnant. Jerusalem, though it was promised to be uninhabited, He's going to restore and replenish and refill this city with inhabitants out of His faithful remnant. In chapter 6, He once again calls them to account because they are a spiritually depraved nation. Micah is pleading with them in chapter 6. He's begging them, verse 1. Plead your case before the mountains, let your hills hear your voice. He says, You forgot Yahweh, verses 1 to 5 of chapter 6. You forgot that He brought you, verse 4, out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and gave you Moses. You forgot about that. Verses 6 to 8, you offer unacceptable sacrifices. Will the Lord be pleased, verse 7, with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And he says in verse 8, no, he told you, O man, what's good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly and to love mercy, kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? He condemns these people because you don't love justice anymore. You steal and you rob and you plunder and you take advantage of the poor and helpless. And You don't love mercy. You don't ever give people what they don't deserve. You don't ever show them kindness. And there is no humility with you at all. You walk in the pride of your heart. But this is what the Lord requires. He says, so it doesn't matter if you kill tens of thousands of animals and pour tens of thousands of gallons of oil in worship to me. It's false worship. You could give your firstborn and it wouldn't matter. Because it requires a heart, a changed heart. This is what God promised in the new covenant. This is what God brought us when he poured out the Spirit. Pentecost is now we have this new heart. This heart of stone is replaced with a heart of flesh. He writes the law in our heart. Verses 9 to 12, once again he condemns them for taking advantage of the poor and oppressed. And verses 13 to 16, as a result, they are under divine wrath. Verse 13, I will strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. Then in chapter 7, The cry of the remnant, the cry of the remnant is, verse 2, all the godly have perished from the earth, that if Jerusalem and their people are left to their wicked ways, there won't be anybody left who loves the Lord. Sounds like the cry of those in the tribulation, in the book of Revelation, who are under the altar, who say, how long, O Lord, until you come and deliver us? How long until the Lord Jesus returns? How long until that day? Verses 3 and 4 of chapter 7, they cry out that the princes and judges conspire against the defenseless. In verses 5 and 6, friends and counselors and even family cannot be trusted. Verse 6, the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But Micah, in the midst of this lament in verse 7, he has these wonderful words. We heard it in Psalm 42, but in Micah 7, 7, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Are you in deep trials? Are you in deep waters this morning? Is your heart heavy because you see no relief? This ought to be the prayer of your heart right here. In faith to be able to say, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation and remind yourself, my God will hear me. He hears my prayers. He hears them. You ever been there where you feel like God doesn't hear your prayers? It's just bouncing off a ceiling. That's not true. He hears them. Wait on him. Wait, wait on the Lord. Remember what Isaiah said? Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They'll rise up on wings of eagles. They'll walk and not grow weary. They'll run and not faint. As for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. And so Yahweh answers. In Micah, in verses 8 to 20, the rest of the book, he says, my answer is I'm going to send the Messiah to deliver a remnant, to refill Jerusalem. Yahweh will vindicate, verses 8 and 9. The enemies will be put to shame, in verse 10. Jerusalem will be expanded and her walls filled with a remnant. Look at verse 11. A day for the rebuilding of your walls, and that day the boundaries shall be far-extended. And that day they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea, from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. I think that's hearkening back to picture of the Garden of Eden. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. Jerusalem filled. And God says it's going to be a sign of his mighty deeds. Verse 15, I will show them marvelous things. I'm going to show them marvelous things by bringing my judgment on those who judge them. And then just to end with this, these last three verses, Micah in response to everything that he's prophesied, he writes really almost like a hymn of praise here a poem of praise, and he says, Who is a God like you? 718. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He doesn't retain his anger forever because he delights in hased, steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He'll tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depth of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers, from the days of old. He says and concludes, Yahweh is a God of forgiving love, verse 18. You pardon, you forgive, you tread, you hurl. (laughs) He's a God of redeeming power, verse 19. God not only puts our sins out of sight, Isaiah 38, 17 says, (laughs) literally between his shoulder blades, out of sight. He also puts them out of reach, here in Micah 7, 19. Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, he puts them out of mind. He remembers them no more, Jeremiah 31 says, and he puts them out of existence. He doesn't just cover them. He removes them and takes them away. This is what God does because he is a God of who delights in steadfast love. Wow, covenant love. And so, verse twenty, he's a god of perpetual faithfulness. The Hebrew words here for um, true, truth, and mercy, ameth and hesed, are sometimes uh, translated truth or faithfulness and grace, respectively. Truth and grace, grace and truth. This is what John said in John 1:17: The law was given through Moses; grace and truth came through Jesus Christ full of grace and truth. This is what we love about him. This is our Savior. And if you haven't believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, I would ask you this morning to give your life to him, to be a part of his kingdom, to be a part of this wonderful kingdom ruled by the Prince of Peace. This picture that we saw where there'll be no more tears, no more crying, no more sorrow. The former things pass away. This world isn't our home. It's a shadow lands. It's a veil of tears. That's why David in Psalm 23 said, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he wasn't talking about dying, he was talking about living in this world, I'll fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And he ends that Psalm by saying, I'm going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. With Christ as our shepherd, we dwell in his house forever.